Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Lots of exciting things going on, and uh, it's a great time to be here. I mean, we are a new church. Some of you have been around from the very kind of when Christ Covenant was an idea. Some of you, maybe this is your first Sunday. If this is your first Sunday, you're really still on the ground floor because this is a brand new church. And, um, and one of the things I said last week, if you were here, is that I believe everyone here, if you're here, is called to be a part of this. In whatever way God has done it, he's called you to be here. You're here because of something. You're here because the spirit is at work in your life and wants to use you here. And we, we talked about that last week when we talked about Paul's Macedonian call, that, that Paul was specifically called uh, and, and he was searching for the will of God for his life, but he was specifically called to Macedonia. And so this week, uh, if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in Acts chapter 16. We're gonna kind of continue that story and talk about what happened when Paul was called. What, when he went to Macedonia, what are some things that happened? And it's, a, it's, a, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Um, it's a long passage of Scripture, so just kind of uh, bear with us. We're going to look at a few things uh, that the Lord did in Macedonia, and I think it'll really encourage us as we think about what the Lord is doing here at Christ's covenant. So we're going to pick up in verse... Uh, 11. Let's just uh, look at this text and then we'll make uh, a few observations. So verse 11, so setting sail uh, from Troas, we made a direct voyage into Samothrace and then Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate by the riverside where we supposed there was a place to pray. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she persuaded us to do so. So we'll stop there. I want to just look at a couple of these people that God is calling together to make this church in Macedonia. And the first one here is Lydia, this successful woman. She was a businesswoman. She was a lot like some of you. She was professional. She was presumably very smart. She'd been, uh, she'd, she'd done very well. She was a spiritual person, so she was a worshiper of God, but obviously she had not received the gospel until Paul came along and her heart and her mind was open to hear and believe what, she was, what he was saying. And she believes and she wants to learn more. And what does she do? She, she invites Paul and she invites Luke, who we believe was here, and Silas and all the rest of this group into her home in order to be discipled, in order to continue to grow. So that's Lydia, this businesswoman, a great success. Let's meet the second person in the story, verse 16. It says, as we're going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to her and said to the spirit, come out, uh, I command you to come out in the name of Jesus. And it came out that very hour. We can presume that this, this woman, this slave girl, was saved. So again, the next person we meet, opposite end of the spectrum from Lydia. Lydia is a powerful, 
businesswoman. This is a slave girl being owned by other people, total outcast in society. But even this woman has this amazing experience with the power of God. She's redeemed, she's reframed. And this church, again, the, the, the converts were, well, the believers in Jesus of this Macedonian era begin to form. We have an insider, wealthy businesswoman, Lydia, and a total outcast, this slave woman. Let's keep going now. Look at verse 19. It says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. Okay, so what happens here? They show compassion on this woman. They remove this demon from this, this slave woman, but the people that, that owned her now have lost their fortune teller. They've lost their gain. They're incredibly angry. And so they, they stir up the crowd to wrongfully and unjustly, not just imprison, but beat and, um, and imprison Paul and his company. Um, now, we're going to come back to this, but, but just keep in mind here, this is a wrongful imprisonment. It is an unjust thing. And actually, later in the text, Paul pursues worldly justice. But notice his attitude in the face of this injustice. Look at verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas, so they're in prison, were praying and were singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out in a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who <clears throat> were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them to his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So you've got the successful businesswoman, insider, Lydia, very powerful person. She has an encounter with the Lord through a very natural conversation with Paul. You've got the very kind of supernatural conversion of this demon-possessed woman, this outcast, this, this slave woman. And then, and then you have the jailers, you have you know, the, the, the insider, successful person, the outcast, and then you have the jailer who I'll just call like, he's just a normal guy, right? He's a family man. He's a working man. Uh, just a normal guy, but he obviously sees the power of God. And, and, and while this amazing thing had happened, this earthquake, we don't actually know that he perceives it to be a supernatural thing, but what so impresses him is the character of Paul and Silas. They're in prison. And what are they doing? They're singing, they're praising God, they're trusting God. 
And then, of course, when the earthquake does happen, they didn't run away. Uh, the prisoners didn't run away either. That's what's the amazing thing about this story. It's not just that Paul and Silas didn't run away. It's that no one ran away. They, they saw that there was power in these people, in these followers of Christ. And, of course, the jailer runs in, and when he sees this and perceives this and hears the gospel, he says, I've got to have it. It's got to be true of me, too. And his whole household is saved. So a successful woman, an outcast, a family man, these people are the core people that God calls together to start the work of God, to start this little Philippian church. And as we're going to see next week, this little church that's formed together by these random folks really changes and impacts the entire world. So, so what I want to do today is, is we consider kind of the beginning of God's work in Macedonia and how the work began to shape. I think that we kind of meet this church in a similar time frame to where we are, the beginning. God has called people together, people from different backgrounds, from different churches, with different visions, and he, and he wants to begin something. He wants to do something here, and I think we can learn a lot from this. So our time is short, but I want to quickly make five observations from this little church in Macedonia that I think will instruct and be helpful for our little church here in Atlanta. First observation is the true church of God is a diverse church. The true church of God is a diverse church. I mean, this is a diverse group. You have a successful woman, an outcast, and a family man. And this diverse group that really would have nothing to do with one another is who God calls together to begin his work in Macedonia. Now, this was nothing new for the church at this time. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Acts 13.1. Just read verse 1. We're not going to be able to talk about what the passage is about. But the church that Paul is coming from, which is the church at Antioch, the people that sent Paul, we read about them in Acts 13.1. Look at this crew, okay? Now, there were the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Jewish guy, Simeon, who was called Niger, which is, was Latin for black. It, it, this guy was presumably from Africa. And again, just so you know, the early church had a lot of Africans. In fact, the greatest theologian of all time, except for maybe Paul, was an African man. In my opinion, it was Augustine. He was an African in the early church. Lucius the Cyrene. So Lucius, this is a Latin name. So this is a, a Latin Roman guy. Now Cyrene is in Northern Africa. Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod. So think about this. You have Barnabas, this Jewish, like kind of normal Jewish guy. You've got these two African men. You've got Menaean, who was a total Jewish insider. I mean, this is Herod, the same Herod that killed Jesus. So this is his like childhood, you know, Jewish privileged friend. And now he is working with this church in Antioch. And then, of course, Saul. <laughs> You couldn't have a more diverse group of people who are united to see Christ's glory go throughout the whole Roman world. And we see the same thing in Philippi. Not so much racial, but definitely socioeconomic. And so let's talk about this for us. Now, we obviously, you know, we find ourselves in, in Buckhead, uh, an affluent area, a well-educated area. And, and, and obviously, if you look around this church, you know, most of us kind of have that, you know, college-educated, working or, you know, white-collared kind of culture about us. And, and I, I don't 
mean to say anything that I'm saying right now to make anyone feel guilty for being who you are. You're, you're, you're who you are. And you're who God has called here. And God has done this. And so I don't want you to feel any more guilty than all of the disciples of Jesus should have felt for all being Jewish, right? But I think, it, I think that our church, over these next two years, as we think about going forward, I think our church is going to change. I, I, I hope and I pray that it does. I, I hope and pray that it starts to reflect not just the, the culture and the character of our local community here, but starts to reflect the character of our city beyond this local community. And I believe that with that will come challenges, but this, with that will come a great revelation of God. And not just, not just uh, racial diversity, but socioeconomic diversity, diversity of all kinds. And this is one of the things that I love about our church. I love that we have the Covenant Arts Collective and things like Covenant Adventures and even the Covenant Institute. These are kinds of things that bring people together so that they can see their true unity in Christ. And I pray that that would just be more so of what, is going, what God is going to do um, at Christ's covenant. Again, I don't exactly know how this is going to manifest itself. Uh, I just believe it's going to happen and God's going to do something. And I guess I'm asking you to be, to have your eyes open for it and your hearts open for it. And in terms of racial diversity, that is a tricky thing in the South. And let's just be honest. There's a lot of layers. In fact, I just read uh, this history of Atlanta called from Peachtree, where Peachtree meets Sweet Auburn. And, and the whole book is, is a racial history of our city, but it's kind of the way you tell the story of the city. It's just this nature of where we are. And, uh, and I, but I believe that, I hope and pray that in this church, there would be a church, we're not in a, a fakey kind of get attention way, but in a general, in a genuine real way, God would just make a move and there would be true diversity, true spirit-filled diversity. Um, you know, I've got some experience with this and it's something I've thought about and read about and prayed about. When I went to First Baptist Covington, uh, I was 26, okay, you know, for the, the fact that this church hired me was crazy. I was 26 and single uh, and like I just turned 26 and I went to this very historic, and everything you think of like a First Baptist county seat church was true of this church, okay? Like every bad stereotype we had, okay? And so I get there, and we, and we did, there was like little local TV, and I did these little like commercials to say, hey, you know, come to First Baptist, I'm the new pastor or whatever. Well, like a few weeks in, I got this letter, and I've kept it, and, and this, this is not indicative of where the whole church was at all, just so you know. But there was no diversity. It was a historically white church. And I got this letter that said, Hello, Pastor Dees. I've noticed your TV ad the last two weeks. It appears to me and other church members that you're seeking new members for a multiracial church. That might be comfortable for you, but for the majority of members, but the majority of members prefer a white American congregation, as it has been for many, many years, and prefer that it remains that way. I have enjoyed your sermons <laughs> and know that the word will get around that you're a good preacher. A faithful church member. Of course, anonymous letter, right? Now, that's kind of where we started. And again, this was not indicative 
of the majority of the members there. But that's what it, it wasn't surprising that I got this letter in this church either. And what we saw happen there over the course of five years was amazing. Um, you know, we started seeing people from different races. A multiracial church started to form. And, you know, first, you know, we had a, a, a black man. It was a single black man that joined. And then we had an Asian family come and an Hispanic family. And, and, and slowly but surely, the culture of the church started to change. Eventually, the church started electing black deacons and eventually a black elder. And, and this, this church where this, these letters were being written that for many, many years had been, you know, a type of church, God moved. Now, I just want to say, like, we didn't do anything to make that happen. It wasn't like this, you know, we prayed that we would be a true spirit-filled church, and God just started to do it, and I so believe that God did. Now, I left there, and I went to Birmingham, Alabama, and I was so excited about what God had done there that I really went after, and what I thought were, like, good intentional ways, racial diversity in a, a, a different site of the church that I was pastoring over there. And it, it was a predominantly, it wasn't like this, but it was a predominantly white suburban church in Birmingham. We started a, a site downtown and we, we did all these strategic things, so we thought, but it just, it never really felt so genuine. It, it never really, it felt like we were kind of forcing it. And, and we, we were trying, we were trying to be obedient. But anyway, my point is this. You can't just conjure up unity in Christ. Christ has to do that. Jesus has to do that. But at the same time, you can resist it. At the same time, you can resist the Spirit's leading. And, and I, we are where we are today. But I really believe that these next two years, something is going to happen. God's going to do something. I don't even know what. I'm not even standing here before you saying, like, this is what's going to happen. This is our strategic vision to do this. I think if we were to do that, it would be wrong. But, but when the Spirit moves and when the Spirit leads, I, I'm asking you to join me and for all of us to be obedient to, to God's call. Because I think we see in this clear passage that the true church of God is a diverse church. Second thing that we see, I know I've got to keep moving. Second thing that we see here is that the true church of God will face hardship. The true church of God will face hardship. Hardship. I mean, look at this. Paul and Silas, what are they doing? They're doing the most compassionate and kind thing they, pro they possibly could have been doing. They're helping out this little slave girl. They, they are following the will of Christ. They're being totally obedient to the Lord. And what happens? In this amazingly unjust way, they're arrested, they're treated poorly, they are beaten, they are attacked, and they are put in prison. They are obeying the call of God. They're giving their whole life to the Lord, and they're facing great hardship. And I just want to say, look, you know, things are, for the most part, really good at Christ's covenant right now. We're a church plant. There's excitement. The congregation seems to be pretty healthy. I say for the most part. But look, we will face hardship as a church. Some of you are facing hardship right now. And, and any true church does face hardship. And any true follower of Christ does face hardship. There will be pain, there will be sickness that we will face as a congregation, and loss of jobs, and wayward children, and death, and all of the challenges that this fallen world brings. So I, I can't promise you as we look to the next two years that it's going to be great and easy. You know, it may be hard sometimes. There may be some sad moments sometimes. 
And I want us to be a church that's honest about that because that is the reality of following Christ in a fallen world. True church of God does face hardship, but thirdly, and this is what I'm so encouraged by this text, is the true church of God doesn't lose heart. It's not that the true church is never sad or disappointed or even a little downcast, but the true church of God doesn't lose heart. I love Paul and Silas. They, they have been, they, they've received this amazing injustice, but they don't lose heart. They don't lose faith. They go to the prison and they worship. They keep their minds and their hearts set on Christ and on his victory and on his mission. And I, I can just imagine them talking to the other prisoners who are, who are facing incredible hardship along with them, just encouraging them and stirring them along. And this is what the true church does. And look, we're going to need one another to not lose heart. We're going to need one another to not lose heart. I'll be honest, there are times when I, get, when, when I get just tired and my faith is not where it needs to be. And you know what I usually need in that? I need rest, usually, and the church. I need people that love me and that encourage me and that pick me up. That's what, that's what the church does, and that's why, even in the face of great hardship, the church doesn't lose heart. That's why Paul needed Silas, and Silas needed Paul, and Luke, and all the other company that was with them. And we know that we can do this because our Lord, in the same way, faced the, the greatest hardship, the hardship of being separated from God, of facing God's wrath, of dying in our place, and yet he didn't lose heart. He continued. He was faithful to the end. The true church of God does not lose heart. And fourthly, and very practically for us today, the true church of God is a people of sacrifice. The true church of God is sacrificial. This whole finding Atlanta thing is about us being sacrificial, sacrificing time, sacrificing resources in order that the mission of God would go forward, in order that people know the gospel and they love the kingdom and they're living for the mission of God. And, you know, this whole passage is about generosity and sacrifice. And, and, I don't, uh, and I don't apologize that we're, we're asking for that because this is true of the church forever. I mean, look at these people, this whole passage about people that are opening their homes and providing for one another. These people that are washing wounds, they're being generous. In fact, the only people here that aren't being generous are the people that are throwing Paul in prison when they lose their profitability, when the uh, girl is no longer telling fortunes. And so what does this mean for us? And we've been talking about it. We talked about it with Matt. What does this mean for us? In the next week, we're going to ask you two things. How are you called to engage? And how are you called to resource? And my big ask is that this week you'd actually spend time in prayer. I don't want you to get caught off guard next week, right? The reason I'm bringing this ridiculously huge card out here right now is so next week you won't feel like, oh my goodness, he just threw this thing in my face. We're just saying, no, this week... And if you didn't get one of the books, we want you to get the book and pray about this. I want you to actually spend time with your family and say, okay, where are we going to engage? And that may be, as Matt said, it, it may be with Covenant Kids. It may be with the Biblical Counseling Center. It may be uh, in partnering with one of the missions that we're going to support around the world. Um, and and I, I'm just going to leave that up to you and ask that the Lord would make that clear. And if you have questions about any of this, please ask us. And then we're asking you to plan how you think you're going to give. And, you know, I, I realize for some of you guys, 
This is a church, you know what's so great about this church is there's a lot of you that you're really, you've got your first like big time job ever. A lot of you are right out of college. And this has never been a habit of your life. And some of you are thinking, well, you know, I don't know if I'm really the person that's supposed to give, you know. I'm the lower entry level position guy. And if you actually like were honest about current giving in 2018, it would be, well, actually that's zero. I haven't given anything. And so what we're asking this person to do is to say, okay, well, next year, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to plan? How am I going to get in the game? How am I going to engage with this? And you know, the thing I always say is, the thing on generosity, if you truly want to be a generous person, it, it's, it's doing exactly what we're talking about right here. You know, if, if I was going to say, if you wanted to save money in your life, if you wanted to save, have a savings account, create savings, prepare for retirement, whatever it is, how do you do that? Do you say if you want to save a bunch of money, you know, at the end of this year, we're going to take all the money that we don't spend this year and put it in our savings account. Is that how you save? Or do you say every paycheck, we're going to take a little bit and we're going to put it in our savings account? You, you all know the answer to this question. If, if you would save money that way, you would never save money. And if you give money that way, you'll never give money. You'll never really be generous. You'll never really be making any sort of long-term impactful financial investment. And so if you're, if you're in this category, you're, you're a new giver, this is kind of new for you, that's what I'm asking you to do. I don't know what that looks like for you. You know, maybe it's, maybe, maybe you start off or something, maybe you start with $100 a month, say, I'm going to make it a goal. And then, the, you know, this is $1,200 for this year. And next year, you're going to do $200. And this is $2,400. And that's an amazing step. You know, some of you guys, y'all have been, and people talk about the biblical principle of a tithe. And of course, we believe that Christ has set us free from the law. We don't give to make peace with God. We trust in Jesus. But a tithe still is, as is all of the Old Testament law, good principle. It's a good principle. 10% for most people is a pretty sacrificial gift. Now, for some of y'all, it's not. You know, for some of y'all, 10% is not sacrificial. You know, Paige and I, we, we've always challenged uh, one another to go beyond. You know, in Birmingham, our goal was that the, the check that we wrote to our church was the largest check we wrote every single month. Now, when we moved over here, you know, our, our salary actually went down and our mortgage went way up. And so, you know, right now it's having, you know, Christ's covenant's having to settle for the second largest check, you know, every month. But our goal is to get back there. Our goal is to get back to that someday. Um, so anyway, for some of y'all, what is that? And I'm just going to ask you to, to think through that and plan that out um, and, you know, look, whether it's a small step or a big step, I'm just trusting that the Lord um, would speak to you because the true church of God with time and with resource is, is sacrificial and has always been. And then the last thing, um, and just very quickly, and, but, but so truly, is that the true church of God can change the world. The true church of God has the potential to change the world. Next week, you need to come back because we're going to talk about how this starts to happen and how this really plays out, how this little Macedonian church is impacting the entire Roman world and is impacting every other church throughout the entire Roman world. This successful woman, this slave woman, this family man jailer come together and start a church that impacts the entire world. And God can do that through us. But here's, here's how it happens. I just want to say this. If, you, if you're listening to this today and you're saying, you know what? 
we just need to be diverse. It'll never happen. <laughs> if we just say, you know, we just need to be not, we just need to not lose heart. You know, you can't just be these things. If you say, I just need to be sacrificial, if you just want to say, I'm going to be sacrificial, and that's just like a decision that you make, then you're never going to really be sacrificial. You know, there's some people that, are, that want to show the world that they're sacrificial, and then you're always looking for credit. You're always wanting people to see how sacrificial you are. That's not real sacrifice. You're just trading money for recognition. You're not really giving something away. You see, the only way that this happens is for God to do this in your life. And when this really happens in your life and in my life is when we stop looking to ourselves and start looking to Christ. We, we look away from ourselves. We stop looking at ourselves and our abilities and, and really find ourselves looking to Jesus, looking to God and trusting that God would do this in us and this is exactly what Jesus does when he comes. You know, Paul wrote a letter later to this church, this Philippian church. And it's called Philippians. And he loves this church. I mean, it says in Philippians chapter 4 that they, this church was his joy and his crown. I mean, he loves this church. But here's the exhortation that he gives them. And this is a famous passage of scripture, but it comes in Philippians 2. Paul says to them, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is how you follow God. This is how God works in you. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but all to the, to the interest of others. And then he says, here's the, the key to spirituality. Here's the key to us being a great church. Here's the key to us being diverse someday. Here's the key to us not losing heart. Here's the key to us changing the world. You want to hear it? It's right here. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. What is he saying? He's saying, have the mind of Jesus, who even though Jesus was fully God, you know that, right? Jesus, in essence, he is God. He is no less than God fully God, and yet he did not consider his equality with God. It says here, a thing to be grasped. That's not the best translation. Another translation says, a thing to be used for his own advantage. I like that better. He did not consider his essence, which was God essence, the essence of God, equality with God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be used for his own advantage. He wasn't always looking to maximize himself, but he emptied himself. And he took the form of a servant. And he did, for somebody who has the essence of God, he did the most humble thing. He was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the point of death on the cross. The amazing thing about Jesus, Jesus didn't just humble himself before God. He actually humbled himself before us. This is what he's displaying throughout his whole ministry. He's washing the feet of his disciples. He's taking on our sin. He's giving us his reward. He died in our place. And it's only when we meet Jesus. It's only when you really believe that Jesus has done that for you. That he's humbled himself before you. That you can then humble yourself before him. And humble yourself before others. And here's the deal that he has. 
And he's provided life and peace and joy when you look to him. And when we start, we start finding that truth, that the way to us being great as a church and as Christians and as individuals is, is following the way of Jesus, which is humility, which is looking away from ourselves and looking to God and his will and looking to others. Well, that's when God does to us what he did to Jesus. He gave Jesus the name that's above every name. That is the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and earth and every tongue could confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's when God starts to exalt his church and do great things among us. That's when we look away from ourselves. We can't just do this. <laughs> the reason this was happening at Philippi is because God was doing this because these people were looking away from themselves and they had found truth and life in Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041, or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.